Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. This is Benjamin Jacobs. Before we get to today's episode, I have some housekeeping. First and foremost, this episode is somehow almost two months late. I said three weeks at the end of the last episode, but then things got nuts. I've been working hard on the website and the episode, but I have had computer problems, production difficulties, I had to drive to New Jersey at one point for Passover, and work has been taking a lot out of me, and I'm trying to find ways to resolve that situation, but now is probably not the time to talk about that yet. Suffice it to say, I have two episodes very close to completion, but they're not there yet, and then I got sick, as you can probably hear. The sore throat in particular makes working on the recording phase of production impossible, and so yeah, that's not happening this week. More broadly, we are nearing the end of the walking tour episodes. I'm jumping the gun a little bit, there's probably going to be about six more episodes, but then given that two of them are going to be on Eastern Europe, and two at least are going to be on Germany, we're definitely on the downward swing. I think everybody probably can see that my initial plan for this background portion has been greatly changed by the nitty-gritty of actually doing the recording. That's kind of just the person I am. Extensive planning beforehand is no replacement for getting in there and doing everything, uh, even if that means screwing things up at first. I'm looking at you, British Isles episode. So, as I finish up this first phase of the background episodes, I want to outline where I think I'm going after we bring all of Europe up to the year 1300. Basically, and I guess kind of obviously, I want to bring us up to the year 1500, like I said in the first episode but not via another walking tour, because oh my god. I think we all have a handle on the geography by this point, and instead, I want to focus on the various things that really influenced Luther and the early modern period from the Middle Ages. Some of the themes I've already highlighted, like trade and the economy, will be summarized pretty easily in an episode, if that. But other things, like the Italian Renaissance, the history of heresy, and the history of religious conflict, will take more time, probably a few three or four episode runs. Um, I haven't got this all planned out yet, but I do have time. Suffice it to say that we will have a good bit of time before we get to Wittenberg, but that the stuff coming up is going to be even more exciting and fun than the stuff we've already been covering. As a taste of the excitement to come, and because audio editing and recording was just not in the cards for today, we have a very special guest episode. Travis Dow does the Bohemican podcast and the History of Alchemy podcast and the History of Germany podcast, and I think he also translates the Secret Cabinet podcast. Uh, 
somehow Travis found time to record today's guest episode, which is completely awesome. Uh, it was fortuitous. He just kind of sent it to me before I even really asked him to. And, uh, just so happened that I got sick and it was sitting there in my inbox and I was like, this is the time to use this. So, um, <clears throat> sorry. <coughs> uh, Travis is going to be discussing Jan Hus, a man who foreshadowed Luther in many ways and who's, who started a war that can only be described as totally metal. There was the one-eyed warrior theocrat Jan Jishka, mass armies of fanatical peasants armed with modified farm tools, war wagons, and all of this was used in a successful campaign against pretty much everyone in Europe. I'm going to cover this all in more detail, but for now I hope you enjoy this little amuse-bouche presented by Travis Dow of the History of Germany and the Bohemian Podcasts. Check them out, they're pretty good. Uh, and I hope this will just tide you over until next week when I should have part one of Eastern Europe done illness permitting. Uh, and I guess since Travis is doing the episode, I should do the intro. Let me see. I think I got something. Here we go. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. But pardon, and gentles all, oh pardon, the flat unraised spirits that have dared to bring forth so great an object. Pierce out our imperfections with your thoughts, into a thousand parts divide on man, and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them, printing their proud hooves in the receding earth. For tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass, for the which supply... Admit me, chorus, to this history, who, prologue-like, your humble patience pray, gently to hear and kindly to judge our play. William Shakespeare in Henry V Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Good evening and welcome to the history of, wait a minute, Wittenberg to Westphalia. My name's Travis Dow and I'm usually the host of the Bohemian podcast and history of Germany. I'm not sure Wittenberg. I've been to Wittenberg. So Martin Luther, is that? Well, before you talk about Martin Luther, I don't, I don't know, I don't know where, I don't know what I'm doing here. Okay. But, um, I know this, Ben, you, you jumped the gun. You, you're talking about holy wars. You're talking about, well, it, you got to talk about the first, you got to start at the beginning. Martin Luther wasn't the beginning. So Martin Luther, he, he hung his 95 thesis on, uh Oh, I'm going off memory here. 1517, maybe don't correct me if I'm wrong. I don't care. Uh, but a hundred years before that was actually very interesting. Also reformer and really considered the first church reformer. Uh, depending on how you define that, that's technically not, not necessarily true, but Jan Hus was maybe the first successful one, let's say. And Jan Hus was basically, you know, so a century before Luther, before Calvin, before Zwingli, we have Hus. And 
um, he had some really interesting ideas. You know, again, very much like Luther, there's a lot of parallels here, but but very much like Luther, he just kind of looked around himself and saw a very, very uh, corrupt church um, that was really abusing their power. And, you know, he's also theologically minded, and he kind of thought very much like uh, like Martin Luther, who was a monk. You know, he kind of thought, well, this isn't necessarily what the Bible says. This isn't necessarily right. And he started to come up with ideas of what would be right. Long story short, he was burned at the stake. Thanks for listening. No, I'm kidding. Well, he was burned at the stake, but um, it's because he was against ecclesiology, like by which I mean he was against the church itself. Um, so Jan Hus was, uh, he was of the opinion that you could be a Christian without necessarily being a Catholic. You know, you could, uh, I mean, why not? You know, the Bible says you gotta, you gotta, I mean, whatever it says, like, accept Lord, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and acknowledge him as the Son of God and uh, whatever. You accept him as, as your God and you're a Christian. Well, you can do all that without talking to a priest, right? So... Those were some of the ideas he came up with. And then the other thing was he was also against the Eucharist. And this is every denomination is against every other denomination's, you know, Eucharist uh, ritual or, or basically. I mean, Eucharist is this is basically communion, right, where you that you have the, the wafer, or the bread and the wine. And Catholics had a different view of it back then. I don't know how in-depth I want to get into this. I want to get to, to the wars and the good stuff. But, but so basically... Um, uh, yeah, the Catholics have a very unique way of, of taking communion that most Protestant um, churches these days are, are far, you know, kind of distance themselves from. Like, uh, you know, the Catholic Church has the, the big fancy golden goblet and it's basically the, the bread and, and wine is holy in and of itself. Uh, Jan Hus didn't believe that. In fact, there's there's a whole spectrum of theology um, about the Eucharist and how often and what it actually is. And does it actually turn to Jesus's body in your stomach or um, does it turn to his body when you bless it? Or does it not do that at all? Because that is disgusting, you know. So um, he had all these ideas about about that, too. Every denomination does, though, to be fair. I mean, that's one of the reasons the Amish split from the Mennonites. It's just ridiculous. In any case, Jan Hus and his followers founded the first independent denomination from Catholicism and was a huge influence on Martin Luther and others. I mean, he was the trailblazer. This is the first. And now, if you know a little bit about Martin Luther, you're, this might sound very familiar. There's going to be a lot of parallels here. And, um, well, you know, there's, there's a reason for that. So, very much like the Lutherans that fought on his behalf after his death, the the very identical same thing happened in uh, with the Hussites. So Jan Hus was executed. I'll, I'll get back to that. But basically, five years after his death, his followers went to war against the Catholics. Now, if you're in Central Europe, you do realize that you're surrounded by Catholics on all sides. Okay. So now, again, if this sounds familiar, Martin Luther's followers did very similar things after Martin Luther's death. Martin Luther's followers were a bit more successful in some ways. But before I get to the epic wars, let me tell you, these battles are epic. When you're fighting everybody on all sides, Pope calls a crusade, it's it's ugly. Um, it gets epic. But let me start with Jan Hus first. So he was born in Husinets and then came to Prague, which is a, a beautiful city I hear. And he received a Bachelor of Arts and then his Master's at the uh, Charles University in Prague. And he became a priest and was in the rector of the university and also the 
preacher at Bethlehem Chapel, which is um, right off of Narodni Trita there, if, if you care. And he was influenced by John Wycliffe, whose followers you may have heard of, you might know them as the Lollards. And even, it's kind of interesting to me that Jan Hus actually translated one of his works into Czech and distributed it. Um, so, you know, everybody has their influences. You can always go uh, further back, but it's just interesting to note uh, Jan Hus's even. However, you don't just distribute works of Wycliffe in, you know, a very Catholic country without kind of getting noticed. And the bishop here in Prague and even the, the king of Bohemia were both pretty lenient with Hus's kind of anti-corruption message he was preaching, because sure, corruption's bad, right? But Pope Innocent VII told them, listen, tell him to knock it off, okay? Because um, even if he's right, he's still preaching against the church. So the Pope said, knock it off. So even though the local um, the local leadership was kind of supportive of him, um, now they basically had the order from the top, shut it down. What Hus would, would do and basically got him in trouble is that he would read stuff from Wycliffe to his congregation at the pulpit. And and you must kind of realize that Wycliffe is very radical compared to <laughs> anything else that existed at the time, you know. So um, this was definitely verboten. You, d you don't do this. It's, it's not okay. And word of this got back to Pope Innocent. So the Bishop also told him to stop talking smack against the clergy in general, right? Um, because, you know, they were both a part of the clergy, so that's kind of inconvenient. So, okay, so Hus backs off. He renounces his former preachings and admit, admitted to kind of going too far and, you know, backs off a little bit. Now we have the Kutnahora decree. Kutnahora, by the way, is uh, the place where the Bone Church is. You know what I'm talking about. If not, you need to Google that right now. Kutnahora Bone Church. You're welcome. So the Kutnahora decree is, so it's kind of like at this instigation of Hus and other Bohemian later, leaders. Now this is an interesting part. So Bohemian leaders, including, um, you know, some of the bishops and, and, you know, the king's lenient at the beginning, some of the nobility kind of likes what they hear and starts to uh, listen a little closely. Now, the Kutnahora decree King Wenceslav decreed in Kutnohora that the that the quote Bohemian nation would have three votes instead of one in university affairs. Now that's a Charles University. There was the like the the Silesian House, the Bavarian House, the Bohemian House. Um, so like the different different dorms from different places. So they're going to have their democratic whatever enhanced because they're going to have three votes instead of one. Right. So the Bohemian House will have three votes. Anyway, so that was that was part of the the kind of compromise. So Bavarian, Saxon, Polish nations would just have one vote each. As a consequence, well, you know, all the people from those houses didn't really like that. So between 5,000 and 20,000 foreign doctors, masters, students left Prague in 1409. That is a huge number, which makes me think that I made a mistake. But uh, let's go with 5,000. Anyways, this exodus kind of resulted in the founding of the University of Leipzig, which is also an interesting little uh, tidbit here. So basically, the, the fallout from this is, you're welcome, Leipzig. And then, and, and also, actually, a couple other universities came out of the, out of the, um, this kind of backlash. So Charles University kind of became more of a, of a smaller college after that. It was more of a backwater. Um, it was a much more Czech school, uh, whereas before, like I said, it was, you know, Saxons, Bavarians, uh, Poles, whatever. And there's another side effect here is that these emigrants that left Prague because of the university, 
Well, they left for a reason, and they, they kind of left in a huff. And so wherever they went, Leipzig, Berlin, wherever you know, wherever they ended up, they they kind of spread the news of these Bohemian heretics, um, and basically spread the news throughout the rest of Europe. So these rumors started to spread that uh, something weird was going on in Bohemia, and and it wasn't quite kosher according to the Catholics. So we we get the the Western Schism. This was the time of popes and anti-popes. Um, that's a whole different story, but just so you know, this is this is that time. And actually, at this particular moment, there were three popes, and it, it that does play an important role for the story. So let me let me uh, explain why it matters that there was three popes. I'm not going to get into the politics. I don't, I don't want to give you the background of anti-popes and all that. But um, in this instance, so Hus is a heretic, a very big, very known heretic, and he doesn't have to deal with one pope. He has to deal with three popes. I think that's the that's uh, the point I'm trying to get across here. Um, Hus and the king and the bishop backed Alexander V. Now, of course they did. But unfortunately, Alexander V was himself seen as heretical in other places, as, you know, anti-popes are wont to do. Now, to make it worse, Alexander demanded an end to all Wycliffean teachings. Hus and his followers refused, and the king and bishop basically backed Hus, okay, so, uh, you know, against the against one of the popes. Alexander excommunicated Hus and all of his followers, just the whole lot. All churches in Prague were put under a ban, and an interdict was put against Prague, but, you know, with no result. But basically, I mean, the whole town was, yeah, kind of restricted. So, I mean, an interdict is, is when the pope bans certain rights in the church, not banning or actually excommunicating the members. So you're not excommunicating them from the church, but you're saying, okay, you can't take communion, something like that. He did that to the whole city of Prague. Okay, that's that's kind of crazy. So things are picking up steam where you start to get an escalation here. Um, now, the bishop dies in 1411. The folks in Prague decided to take bigger issue with indulgences. Um, yeah, okay, this is another one that Martin Luther picked up on. Indulgences, right? You you basically pay uh, for an indulgence, and the indulgence will get you time out of purgatory. There's nothing about that in the Bible. At this time, the Bible was still only in Latin, so the common man didn't really know if that was in the Bible or not. So if a priest told you it was, well, heck, it was. Um, this is actually why Martin Luther is so important, was because he was the guy that made uh, the Bible available to the layman. Okay, but in this time, so now they, they see their chance, the bishop dies, let's get rid of these indulgences. It's very uh, Lutheran of, of, of him. Oh, I should say, they were. This, was a, this is a different pope now. So uh, another pope would also later be declared an anti-pope. I don't even care about names right now. He basically had enough at this and declared a crusade on Naples for which they gathered indulgences, which became a sign of corruption of the church. Same thing with Martin Luther. Hus preached against it. Some followers burnt the papal bulls like the edicts. Hus preached that no pope or bishop had the right to raise a sword against his enemies and should pray for them instead. Sure, right? Can you imagine a priest with a sword? Yeah, we just we don't think like that anymore. The church, however, promptly beheaded three lower class citizens in response. That escalated quickly. Now, these three are later considered to be the first Hussite martyrs, uh, which is, you know, in it's important in Czech history. It is, okay? You, you care about this. 
Now, Hus had the backing of the university faculty, and so, you know, word began to spread, more escalation. So, you know, the, the cat, I mean, you know, everyone's pushing, pushing buttons here, left and right. The king tried to smooth things over, but only with the result that Hus that Hus's opponents left Prague. So Hus's ideas spread to Croatia, Poland, Austria, Hungary, because, you know, yeah, I mean, the king kicks them out, so they, they leave Prague, but they still have the same ideas. So now they started to spread these all over the region, all over Central Europe. So the king of Hungary stepped in, okay, because, um, so first of all, the king of Hungary at this time was the heir to the Czech throne and also Václav's brother, so all parties agreed to the Council of Constance to kind of smooth things over. Hus came with the understanding that, you know, he would have safe pa passage, right? I mean, obviously. He wrote his will before he left, because he's not that naive. And when he got to Constance, he kept preaching, which, you know, for okay, first of all, that was, that was uh, forbidden against the agreement. And how bad do you really want to be a martyr? Really, but anyway, so he he kept preaching, and that was basically it. So so his opponents imprisoned him, threw him into a Dominican dungeon. Okay, so now the Pope steps steps in and says, okay, what is actually going on here? What is he saying that's so bad? So the Pope, the new one, not Alexander the Seventh, but the one I don't care about, steps in and has his first investigation, conducted by three bishops and. Then they had a, a trial following this. Now, the Pope left. He was basically about to be, you know, forced to abdicate. Remember, he's one of two anti-popes, and there's another, there's another Pope somewhere. So um, he was about to abdicate and was chained up in the castle of the Bishop of Constance. He was poorly fed and became ill. The, the thing about Hus was that he also, he refused all forms of submission. He, he declared himself willing to recant if his errors should be proven to him based on the Bible. That that almost sounds like a quote from Luther, um, but this is Hus saying this a hundred years earlier. So he was asked to confess, first of all, that he had erred in the thesis, which he had kind of hitherto maintained, that he had renounced them for the future, that he recanted them, and that he declare the opposite of these uh, you know, the, 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 like the earlier things that he was preaching, right? So admit he made a mistake, renounce them in the future, recant them in the past, and then from then on, start preaching the opposite. Uh, the weird thing is, is that, you know, they were really trying to kind of get his goat here. So they actually asked him to recant things, uh, like certain doctrines and, and, and theories that he never actually preached. So just, you know, some other heretical views floating around Europe. They're like, okay, Hus, you're going to tell us that these aren't true. And Hus was like, well, I didn't even say that. I can't recant something that I never said in the first place. And he, so he just refused then. Okay, so he had a, another trial. And after the final trial, he refused to denounce anything. Uh, I guess, you know, again, if, unless it could be proven from the Bible that the, the bishop and pope were right and he was wrong. Now, at this point, the last trial... He fell upon his knees and asked God with a low voice to forgive all his enemies. Then followed his degradation. He was enrobed in priestly vestments and again asked to recant. Again he refused. With curses his ornaments were taken from him, his priestly tonsure was destroyed, and the sentence was pronounced that the church had depri deprived him of all rights and delivered him to the secular powers. 
Then a high paper hat. I, I kind of imagine like a dunce hat or something, but it could be like more of a um, like a bishop's high hat, whatever. But a paper hat was put on his head with the inscription Heresiarcha, meaning the leader of the heretical movement. So Hus was led away from the court and um, under very strong guard, obviously, and brought to the place of execution. Again, he knelt down and he spread out his hands and he prayed aloud. It is said that when he was about to expire, he cried out, Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on us. Then the executioners undressed Hus and tied his hands behind his back with ropes, bound his neck with a chain to a stake, around which wood and straw had been piled up so that kind of cover him up to the neck, basically. Now, at the last moment, the imperial marshal, von Pappenheim, in the presence of, of the Count Palatine, asked him to recant and thus save his own life. This is basic, this is it right here. You know, he's, he's, he's on the pyre. But Hus declined with the words, God is my witness that the things charged against me I never preached in the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, drawing upon the sayings and positions of the holy doctors, I am ready to die today. And so he was burned at the stake, and his ashes were thrown into the Rhine. Now, anecdotally, it has been claimed that the executioners had some problems scaling up the fire. An old woman came closer to the bonfire and threw a relatively small amount of brushwood on it. Hus, seeing it, then said, Sancta Simplicatus, Holy Simplicity, the sentences Czech equivalent, Svata Prostota, or invocative form Svata Prostoto, is still used, you know, for a stupid action, like the woman's trying to help, but yeah, anyways. Okay. Let's get to the good part. Fast forward four years. Most of Bohemia now was Protestant. So this was like wildfire. That's, that's kind of, that's another reason why I like to compare him to Martin Luther. So there were, there were previous um, would-be reformers that were just killed as heretics before. You know, France, there's, there's all kinds of examples. But, but these were the ones that they, they spread and it, it didn't go away. This, this really took. They were like, dang it, we know we're right. So... And not only was Bohemia now Protestant, but, you know, were all those people left because they were kicked out by the king or the bishop or, you know, whatever throughout the last couple of years. Um, there's also surrounding areas. So even, uh, you know, kind of near the border of Poland, like on the Polish side, the German, like the Saxon side, there was no Germany, Saxony, the Saxon side, you know, all those like around um, the Czech, what Czech Republic is today. So the Hussite started to kind of spread. And now we're talking 1419 to 1434. And we get an interesting character. I've mentioned him a few times here and there. Um, I used to give a ghost tour where I, I go to the old 17th century torture. They're actually much older than that, but they were turned into torture chambers in the 16th or 17th century. Still human bones down there. It's crazy. It's like 12th century cobblestone um, underneath. But Jan Jalewski, why did I say all that? Oh, because Jan Jalewski was tortured there for three years, but I'm skipping ahead again. So Jan Jalewski... Um, was a was a kind of radical reformer, total total Hussite, but one of the more radical ones. And he kept kind of getting more and more radical. And one Sunday, he just, he worked his congregation up to a frenzy, and they just they just had it, and they just marched out of their church, and went from the church to um, Newtown, uh, the Newtown Hall, which is on Karlovo Namiesti, uh, Charles Square, which is next to Hooters. Why would I say that? 
um, but it is. So they marched up to Hooters, um, well, next to it. They went to the old, t- the new town hall in Charles Square, and they went up uh, to the second or third floor, and they chucked out the uh, kind of the, the the mayor of Newtown and his lackeys out the window. This is a pivotal moment in Czech history, by the way. Chucking someone out of the window, the word for that is defenestration. Every Czech child, and probably Slovak, learns about the first and second defenestration of Prague. I just described to you the first one. Okay, to be fair, those people were throwing stones at the Hussites out the window. So, you know, they kind of had it coming, I guess, but... Revolt was kind of happening. Jan Zielewski was was you know one of the instigators here, and we have King Václav, uh, uh, King Wenceslav in English. He died two weeks later. Now Wenceslav's widow, Sofia of Bavaria, like okay, let's you know nip this in the bud, and she ha- promptly hired mercenaries to kind of take control of Prague, which did not end well. Wait till Ben gets to the Thirty Years' War. It does not end well. Mercenaries, bad idea. So a lot of Germans, who were mostly still Catholic, remember, Martin Luther hasn't happened yet, they were all expelled from cities in Bohemia because because they were Catholic, not because they were Germans. That happened much later. Now, I don't want to get into a blow-by-blow blow of the battles. I don't know if that's what Ben's going to do, but I want to I want to uh, kind of talk about some of the important points here. Like, what what made this battle crazy what made it so unique and interesting compared to um, some of the other battles of the time well let me start you with this one the pope sent crusades against bohemia that's right someone in europe sent a crusade against some other place in europe that sounds crazy to me but actually that has happened many 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 times it's just when we think of the crusades we think of the pope sending people to the middle east um yeah so it's a full-on you know crusade against the heretics from all sides poland hungary just you know get rid of them now we have some some kind of uh, branches of the hussites so we have on one side we have the utraquists and then we also have the taborites now tabwa named after the mountain in israel is that right mount tabor yeah it's by jerusalem i think I'm going to get in trouble here. So Tabor in the Czech Republic, let's let's keep it safe, soon became the center of the most militant Hussites. So these were the, oh, and Tabor, you guys. So, um, so Tabor is a kind of a city citadel sort of thing on a very steep, it's, it's not a huge mountain, but it is like cliffs on all sides. It is naturally defended. And then what they did is they, they drilled down into the mountain. So Tabor is one of the most craziest, like fortresses of the time. That wasn't even a fortress. It was just a bunch of crazies kind of, you know, walling themselves up. If you go to Czech Republic, Tabor is a place to see it. It is pretty cool. Now the Tabor only recognized two sacraments, baptism and communion. They rejected almost all of the other ceremony and ritual of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this this kind of like they went extreme. So the 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 organization of this, or the, let's say the ecclesiastical organization of Tabor, had a somewhat puritanical character to it. Like they were, uh, you know, they were on fire, and they you know they wanted change, and and heck, I mean, God was on their side, right? Obviously, so. Why not? Now, 
so again, Talbor, Talbor actually, there's so many interesting stories here. Talbor it kind of turned into a weird cult at at, at, a, at one point, but um, the government was established on a really thoroughly democratic basis. Again, we're talking like 1420, thoroughly democratic, like a like an actual democracy, not representative or you know that crap we try to pull, but no, an actual dem democracy in 1420. Okay, four captains of the people. Hate money in Czech, which I'm sure you care, were elected. One of them was Zizka. This guy you should remember. But after a very strict military discipline was kind of instituted, so Zizka is a famous military leader. Now, Tabor is a whole podcast episode in and of itself. I mean, like it literally is. You can go to bohemican.com and listen to it. I will mention one thing about Tabor because I just can't help myself. Yeah, Tabor, because it's just too cool not to say. Like, it was really, it kind of, so first of all, you have this direct democracy. Um, you have a kind of a, I'm not sure Puritan is the right word, honestly, but but it's a, it is a very religious, but it's a new religious um, kind of kind of feel to it. Like, so they, yeah, so they started to kind of go into like, like neo-Adamites, because um, originally Adamites were the second to fourth century early Christian from like Northern Africa. And um, what they did was they emulated life before sin. Okay, basically that means you get naked. So they rejected marriage. Um, they saying that without sin it wouldn't be needed, um, you know, to get married early because it's not a sin to not to you know. <clears throat> so they worshipped in the buff, rejected sin, since there was no good and evil before Eve ate the forbidden fruit, right? So, okay, but Hussites quickly put the kibosh on this because this is out of control. This is a, um, yeah, there's a, Ben, are you going to talk about the Munster uprising? Just do it. I know uh, Dan Carlin did an episode on it, but this is, that's within your scope. You have to do Munster. Editor's note, I will, in fact, be covering the Munster uprising. So anyways, crazy cult in Tabor. Awesome. So everyone worshiping naked and there's no sin. So maybe I'll just get to the battles, yeah? So... I'll mention one thing from these crusades. Now, if you if you live in Prague, it's kind of cool reading about the battles because they're basically metro like uh, subway stations in Prague, like Vyshadad, Radchani, um, which are the two castles in Prague. You read about these things that happened 500 years ago or 80 years ago or whatever, and you're like, oh, that's right there, you know. So it's just kind of a neat thing of of uh, living in Central Europe and reading about this stuff. I don't live in Central Europe anymore. I moved to California three months ago. But anyways, there's no Hussites here, in case you were wondering. It wasn't just Czechs. It wasn't just Tabor and the Utraquists. Like I said, they spread. So f at times, they were actually helped by uh, newly converted kind of Polish and Lithuanian uh, Hussites. And at one point, Hussites even offered the crown of Bohemia to the Polish king. And he kind of turned it down. So then they offered it to his cousin. And uh, yeah, so... There were some four crusades or so, depending on what you call a crusade exactly, but, but there were four crusades, you know, like crusades called by the Pope, and each time the Hussites repelled them. Now, unfortunately, Hussites didn't just repel the Catholics coming in to Bohemia, they also fought each other. Um, basically, as soon as an enemy was defeated, they would come in and just, you know, fight each other. But now and then they got their act together for long enough to, like, let's say, invade Germany, which they did several times. And there's another interesting thing, because 
who were these people that were um, defeating these massive armies of Catholics, you know, for Crusades? What the heck were they doing? So we have Tabor, which is like this impenetrable fortress with hidden passageways. And please go see it if you go visit Czech Republic. But um, besides that, they had tactics. So they, they started using pikes. They had a specific kind of weapon with a pike sort of axe thing on it. Um, you'll know when you see it. And the Hussites used those. And then they also used what's called a laga, L-A-A-G-E-R. Basically, um, well, in English, you know, it's it's a wagon fort is what it is. It's like a 19th century cowboys and Indians, except we're talking 15th century and Catholics and Hussites. But yeah, they had these wagon forts that they would kind of, you know, the, the Germans call it a Wagenburg, like a wagon castle. In Czech, it's a Vozova Hrabba, which is basically the same same thing, actually. Um, it's a mobile fortification. Now, so when the when the Hussite army faced numerically superior opponents, then uh, they wouldn't kind of go in a circle like you'd think of from the you know Western movies, but more of a kind of a square. And then they joined them all with iron chains to really make it one unit. So you know one person couldn't just take one wagon away and you know the the chain's gone or the 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 square is gone no they they chained it all together you know it really was a kind of fort and then they could kind of you know hold off some of the charges against the enemy even if they were you know vastly outnumbered now such a camp, camp was obviously you know you just kind of pull up and you pull up in a square and um it was practically invulnerable to enemy cavalry i mean you know you got each each wagon has like 18, 20, 21 men, or let's say around 20 guys. You got four to eight crossbowmen, two handgunners, six to eight soldiers equipped with like these pikes, uh, sometimes also flails, um, shield carriers. You got drivers, uh, like, like a couple of drivers. You know, they, they got their fort together and then they're being surrounded by the Catholics. And the first stage was kind of, you know, hold in there and not get slaughtered. And then as soon as the, the first wave would you know, be defeated, then came the counter attack. And, you know, there was already artillery and, and things in this day. So, you know, they they got shelled and everything that involved, you know, kind of being defensive. Uh, here's another podcast uh, trivia fact for you. Um, the the word pistol actually comes from this, from, from the Hussite Wars, our English word pistol. And also uh, our word for howitzer. So the the pistol comes from the Czech word pistala, which means that it was like shaped like a fife, which is you know a pipe, right? And and so then pistala kind of became pistol. These were much more primitive, like hand cannons kind of thing, but that's what they called it because it looked like a pipe if you turn it upside down. And then howitzer. Now in Czech, a hofnitze. Um, a Hofnitze was these artillery things that they were being shelled with, okay? And, uh, uh, well, Hofnitze, okay, artillery and howitzer. There you have it. The Hussites had, so they had their infantry, they had their guns, crossbows. They also had um, some cavalry in the square. And so their counterattack would be like, you know, open up, you know, when the enemy is kind of on the retreat, then open up the, the fort and just everyone swarm out. And normally that would be it. The enemy would be gone. They they won the battle. Uh, so it was very effective. And it was effective enough to last for four crusades. And and it's cool because uh, it was so effective that this has been studies studied. Like we have uh, English words from these battles, which, you know, how many English words come from Czech, right? Uh, well, 
robot does. You guys, you guys knew that, right? Robot is a Czech word. Robotnik is like a manual factory worker. First coined by Karl Chopek or his brother as an actual, to describe an automaton. And it was coined in Prague in the 1920s. You learn something every day. Okay, but now I'm way off topic. Well, I'm sorry. And then um, these same tactics were used, like like the infantry squares of Wellington in the Battle of Water, Waterloo. There's the the South South African logger that did kind of similar things. You know, obviously we have the the frontiers that are romanticized in the Wild West movies, um, though they should not be. Like a lot of influence came from from these events. In fact, even today, uh, locally, well formerly locally in the Czech Republic, um, a convoy or like a, like a camp of gypsies, um, which they, they still deal with a lot of um, discrimination and, and stuff like that over there. But those those camps and the their uh, convoy formations are still called Tabor formations, um, like the city, which was named after the hill in, in Jerusalem. So, you know, it's just, like it's just so cool that all this stuff is still kind of around like if you, if you wander around Prague you can still feel it it's it's not over you can I mean you can still feel the influences all these years later um, there was Hussites that got persecuted in the 17-1800s ended up moving to other states so we have we have Hussites here uh, the old Moravian church and um, but there's definitely um, like the Czech brethren were uh, formed from Hussites or an off branch of, of Hussites. They're still around and they're also here. Oddly enough in Texas, they're mostly mostly Catholics. They're mostly Moravians, not Bohemians. But anywhere else you meet a Czech, uh, they're probably going to be atheist. But if not, then they're probably brethren or, or you know, their grandparents were Hussites or something like that. Um, just not in Texas. Go to Chicago. Okay, but when all was said and done, this can't last forever, so the peace agreement went thusly. Now, sooner or later, the, the Bohemians started, I mean, they were just overwhelmed with numbers, and they kept fighting themselves. It didn't last forever. Um, Jan Zizka, the reason I was kind of giggling earlier is, um, well, I'm not going to tell you, actually, but he lost an eye. Uh, he's a one-eyed general. And to this day, he's a national hero. There's Zizkov Hill right where I used to live. I used to live in a part of town called Zizkov. There's Zizka, there's the man monument on top of the hill, this huge statue of, you know, the general on the horse wearing an eye patch, just looking generally extremely badass, you know. And the funny thing is, is like uh, the statue I I'm describing is on a mausoleum for uh, Clement Gottwald, the first communist leader. The communist built a statue of Zizka that's how nationally important he is. Just take that in. They built a huge statue to, to Stalin, the biggest concrete statue ever built, sure, but they also built a statue to a Protestant general? I mean, it just doesn't make sense for communists to do. That's my point. That is how, uh, and Zizka was that, like he was, he was the, he was the hero of the Hussite Wars, and um, especially because then, you know, a couple hundred years later, um, as Ben will tell you, um, that when the Austrians take over, they don't really like the Hussites so much. So um, when the Austrians fell in 1918, 1917, then they, the, the Czechs brought all this Hussite stuff back, all these old war heroes that they couldn't, you know, worship um, for like 300 years. You know, so they brought it all back. Boy, did I ever just go off on a tangent there. Hold on. So, okay, the peace agreement. <laughs> the Holy Sacrament is to be given freely in both kinds to all Christians in Bohemia and Moravia, and to those elsewhere who adhere to the faith of those two countries, okay? 
Now, this is already interesting. This is already like a concession. Like, you don't have to, we're not going to force you to re-baptize Catholic, um, but, you know, we're going to work out this arrangement. This is the 15th century. This is, a, again, it's 100 years before Luther. Um, so, okay, number two was, all mortal sins shall be punished and extirpated by those whose office it is to do so. All right. Number three, the word of God is to be freely and truthfully preached by the priests of the Lord and by worthy deacons. Number four, the priests in the time of the law of grace shall claim no ownership of worldly possessions. Um, yeah, three and four kind of came directly out of Tabor. So um, in Tabor, just like Münster, Ben, like in Münster, it was Anabaptists. And, and basically, it's just saying, okay, you know what? Here's a Bible. It's in German, which that's what you are. You're a German. Go read it and go interpret it yourself. And before too long, they're all running around naked and, you know, got killed. So basically a cult situation. And this was kind of happening here to a degree. And so they said, you know what? We don't want anybody just preaching. Anybody wants to read the Bible? Cool. You know, learn Latin because it's not in German yet. And we don't, you know, it's not in Czech yet. That's fine. Preach it, but make sure it's priests preaching it. Priests of the Lord and worthy deacons. Not even just any old deacon, worthy ones. And then, and then also, uh, I, I think it's part of this kind of culty situation that um, the priests in Tabor ended up being the ones who had a little bit of power. And there was a, maybe a couple of those that um, got a little corrupt and you know started to abuse their power a little bit. And therefore, number four, the priests in the time of the law of grace shall be shall or sorry shall claim no ownership of worldly possessions. Okay, so they wanted to be kind of like um, some of the Catholic uh, monks with the vow of poverty. So there's just no temptation in, you know, like gaining wealth. It's just not a thing. It's not a goal. Um, you know, get rid of this kind of cult abuse of power sort of thing, which I think that kind of worked for everybody on all sides. So there's so much more to this battle of, of the Hussite Wars. But this is I'm getting on to like 45 minutes here. I don't want to give you an hour show. So I'll tell you what. Ben, I'll be happy to come back on the show and give you a part two about the Hussite Wars, give you more details, life of Zishka, whatever you want. But for now, let me just kind of wrap it up here. So Hus was basically a key contributor to, Protest to Protestantism. Duh, right? That's what we're talking about. That's what this whole podcast is about, um, the whole show. So you know, the, the teachings had a whole strong influence on states of Europe Martin Luther himself, as I've said a hundred times now, but the Hussite Wars resulted in the Basel Compacts, which allowed for a sort of reformed church in the Kingdom of Bohemia. This is kind of like having an Anglican church, except way, you know, 200 years before then. Like, this is a century before such developments would take place, you know, in Wittenberg and, and the Lutheran Re Reformation. The Unitas Fratum, or Moravian Church. Oh, okay, so I, I did have that right. <laughs> Thanks, Travis. You're welcome. Considers itself a spiritual heir to many of Hus's followers. Hus' extensive writings earn him a prominent place in Czech literary history. Um, and this, that's actually an interesting fact. Like He actually wrote enough that um, they study his Czech because it is some of the older Czech around to study. It's 15th century Czech. Um, and uh, after that, Czech kind of went in a steep decline after three centuries of Austrians. Um, and times and places, Czech was actually banned and was, you know, becoming extinct by the 19th century. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so, again, this is one more legacy of, of that host has. And the same goes for German. That's another parallel. Um, my first Bible was a 
Lutheran Bible, which was kind of difficult for me to read because it was like older German, you know, 16th century German um, Bible. It was not a new edition. It was Luther's words was my first Bible. And um, I think that's, you know, that's kind of the legacy of uh, some of these people because um, Luther is in the same boat. He did so much literary work actually translating the Bible that um, German, the language as a whole, benefited from this just like the king's james bible we have phrases in english that come from that translation german is the same way there are uh, phrases in german that came from the lutheran bible that did not appear in writing before okay and um so jan hus has a little bit of this as well he, he wrote enough about his theology and philosophy and everything um that they can actually you know go back and say wow this is really interesting because like one Thing that affects every single Czech person's life is he's the one that actually implemented those diacritics. So the the um, the the Hatchek specifically, the Hatchek is it looks like an angry unibrow. You know what I mean? It's a it's a very wide kind of flattened V, okay? And it goes over a C and it turns the C to a Ch, it turns an S to a Sh, it turns a R from uh, or whatever that's Czech is the only language that has that that cursed sound except Czechs kept telling me that there was a Native American language that had it but which I have never been able to verify um, so I'm not going to repeat that here in any case the hot check is basically to make one letter come up with one sound because yeah that would have been really great so so Z is is Z and with a, a hot check it's Z and like the J sound in German, like if they want to say a J sound like J, they say D-S-C-H, like jungle, like jungle, J-U, you know, they say D-S-C-H-U-N-G-E-L. It's four letters to make one. So Jan Hus didn't want any of this. That's not the point of this podcast, but, you know, that is cool, too. And then, I mean, his right Old Town Square Prague, there's, that's the big statue that you see in Old Town Square. That's Jan Hus. Um, but not, I mean, not just Prague, there's, there's statues of him actually in New York city. There's a church in Brooklyn, um, and a church in Manhattan, uh, both named after Hus. Um, in fact, if you, if you're curious and from the area, the John Hus Moravian church and the John Hus Presbyterian church, there's also the, the Jan Hus playhouse. I wonder if they say John, Jan, Jan. Interesting. Anyways, it's Jan Hus. Um, and then the Manhattan's church and theater, uh, kind of share a single building and management, the Playhouse's productions are kind of non-religious, non-denominational, even though, you know, they, it's just a name. We have the statue of Jan Hus was erected in the Union Cemetery in Bohemia, New York, on Long Island, uh, by Czech immigrants to New York area in 1893. So, you know, the, the, the Czechs, Czechs around the world, um, they know who Jan Hus is. Not only do they know who he is, like that is, it's part of their identity. Just as Martin Luther, even if you're not a Lutheran, it doesn't matter. If you are a, uh, if you were under Bismarck and you were under Prussian, um, to be a Lutheran meant to be German, okay? And in, in a very similar way, if you were, if you're an old Moravian or if you go to the, the old Moravian church, um, there must be a certain amount of pride to know that you're kind of a, you know, following a direct tradition straight from 1422 or whatever. Um, 1419 is the defenestration. It's, it's just really interesting stuff. I guess I like history is what I'm trying to say. So anyways, uh, if you like this, um, there's a lot more of this sort of thing on bohemican.com. That is what we do. It's about uh, Czech, Czech history, 
but not just history, but like culture and stuff. Um, it is stuff you probably never thought about. Um, like why hockey is way more important than you think. I, I don't like hockey, but it is actually super important, um, critical. But you don't know that yet because you haven't heard that episode, so you should. And, uh, the, you know, I do the History of Germany podcast where some of this will come up, and I'm sure I'll collaborate a lot more with Ben in the future because we're both uh, there'll, there'll be some overlap here and there, so, so why not? And, yeah, hey, thanks for listening. And, Ben, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's, it's been a blast. <laughs> Who am I kidding? He's never going to let me do this again. <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.